History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this second episode in the Haunted Circus miniseries. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be talking about what makes up the circus, and that is the performers, both the animals and the humans. Absolutely. We also have a couple of hauntings to go along with this that are because of a couple of horrible train wrecks. As we talked about in the first episode, these traveling circuses, that's how they got around for much of their time. Right. As a matter of fact, that's how they, a lot of them still get around is through the train. I believe you're correct. Before we jump into that, we just wanted to send out our well wishes to put a timestamp on this episode. We have coronavirus going on around the world, so we just hope that everybody is staying safe and healthy. Yes, absolutely. Don't forget about that social distancing of six feet. And as introverts, I guess we're okay with that, aren't we? <laughs> I'm very much okay with that. <laughs> Circus performers come in all varieties of shape, size, and color. Some are human, while others are animals. These performers all provide their own unique gifts to bring the world a spectacular version of entertainment. There are thousands of people behind the scenes as well that are just as much a part of the circus. To put it simply, the circus is a family. On this second episode in our series on the Haunted Circus, we are going to feature that family. We'll talk about the lives of some of the more popular circus performers and the different acts that became world famous. As you learned in episode one, the traveling circus relied heavily on trains, and there were two tragic train wrecks we will share. These were the Hollenbeck-Wallace train wreck and 1915 circus train disaster. And we have ghost stories. So... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, join us for the greatest show on earth. As you heard in our first episode, a listener named Debbie inspired this miniseries. She'd been with the circus for years and shares with us how she got involved and what it was like. So we are joined by Debbie Farenbrook. Is that how you say your last name? Farenbrook is the American pronunciation, yeah. Gotcha. Debbie, you were the inspiration behind this whole Haunted Circus miniseries. You said, hey, you need to come check out the Al Ringling Mansion in Wisconsin. And then you were like, and then down here in Sarasota. And before we knew it, we were actually heading down to Sarasota and meeting up with you to check out the museum and Cotizan and all the great stuff there. Yeah, that was a fun day. The weather was perfect. It was. It wasn't quite as chilly as it had been, but it wasn't overly hot either. Debbie, you were one of those people who decided to run away with a circus. So I would love for you to tell everybody a little bit about what made you decide to get involved with the circus and what did you do while you worked for them? My love has always been with animals. I always tell people if it doesn't have four legs and a tail, I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) 
in my 40s, I decided to go back to school, go back to college. And I went to a wonderful school in Moorpark College at Moorpark College called America's Teaching Zoo. It's a, you get a degree in exotic animal management. Actually, it's, a, it's EDEM. So it's exotic animal training and management. You spend two years just com- there completely immersed in animals. In fact, they have about 250 animals at the facility there. Wow. But when I went there, my life before that was almost a little bit on the animal activist side. I had uh, actually volunteered and went to what was called the Higgins Pigeon Shoot for anybody from Pennsylvania. They probably know what I'm talking about. Literally saved pigeons, took them home, rehabbed them, and then released them again. My background is a little bit in that. So when I graduated from Moorpark, the director of the school at the time called me up and told me, I have a job I want you to go interview for. And I said, oh, okay, what's that? And he said, training zebras for the circus. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And I said, oh, I, I don't know about that. You know, you, you hear what they say about the circus. And I had to drive all the way back to Kentucky from California. And as I was driving back, I went, what the heck? I'll go ahead and interview with the circus. I'd never been behind the scenes of the circus. This was with Ringling Brothers, Barton and Bailey. And I told myself, I'll just be able to hone my interview skills when I interview for Ringling for my real job that I'll find somewhere else. It took four months before I took the job, but I've never looked back. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life. That's so cool. So yeah, I basically had a midlife crisis in my 40s. My midlife crisis was going back to school and then running away with the circus. Hey, you know, people do it at all different ages. (laughs) Now, I remember you telling us a little bit about it and going, this touring with the circus is not for people who are a little bit older. So it was pretty rough. I was on the unit for four years. I traveled with the blue unit on the train, love living on the train. But you got to remember all these athletes, they are a little younger and uh, they are pretty darn fit. So uh, after a while, with the traveling in long hours, because animals, you've got to work on their schedule. So I was always up by, oh, probably seven and, and not and didn't get home till after the sh- last show, which might have been 10 o'clock. So I decided that I was going to get off the road and I left the circus. But it wasn't even a year later. They called me back up and asked me to work in their government relations department. And I worked there for about 12 years worked for Ringling Brothers about a total of 17 years, right up until they closed. And just like that, Debbie had run away with the circus and continued on with the circus family doing other duties. Well, it seems like, you know, everybody who works for the circus, they've got some sort of connection. Most of it, I mean, circus performers, it's one of the last generational jobs. I know I have friends that are 11 generations circus. They can track their, their lineage back that far. So my connection is actually my grandfather was the head printer for Cincinnati Enquirer. Oh, wow. uh, Printing company. So he printed just all kinds of, you know, any circus poster from Enquirer that you have between like 19, I don't know, 19, sometime in 1920s to up to 1976. My grandfather printed it. That is so cool. That's my connection. The circus was very much a generational thing. Many of the most famous acts were created by families that carried on the tradition for decades. 
and the circus grew to be a place culturally diverse. You got to know a lot of performers while you were working for the circus. Is there any that you would like to talk a little bit about? I can tell you sort of in general in that it was, you talk about the American melting pot. If you really want to see it up close and personal, it's backstage at the circus. I can remember going backstage when they were getting ready for the performers to go out for the finale. And I counted 11 different languages just standing backstage. They had performers from all over the world. I got to learn a lot of different cultures and spend time with a lot of different performers. When we first went into the Circus Museum, there was this huge mural. You remember that, Kelly? It was amazing. And yes. it was huge. It was. I don't know if it's been posted up on the Instagram yet, but if not, I will get it up there. Oh, you must. It featured many of the famous circus acts for the Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus, and it was just gorgeous. Including our friend Peggy. Yes, who <laughs> we will be bringing up on this episode. This Looking very forward cool. to that. The early modern circus was centered around equestrian acts. And we talked about some of those people in the first episode from Philip Astley to John Ricketts and beyond. Much of this was trick riding, but eventually acrobatics found its way onto horseback around the middle of the 19th century. John H. Glenroy would be the first equestrian to accomplish a somersault on horseback, and he did it in 1846. Now, Kelly, I know you're a horse person. You actually have owned a couple of horses. You've horseback ridden for pretty much your whole life, I think. I even did some vaulting for a while where you're on the horse as it goes around in the circle and you're doing different things. But I certainly, <laughs> I, I can't do a backflip without being on a horse, let alone do one on a horse. And then there's me who's, I'm pretty much afraid to get on horses. I've been on a few in my time, but it's not one of my favorite things to do. I can't even imagine doing a somersault on a horse. They're just like big puppy dogs. Yeah, but I wouldn't try a somersault (laughs) on a puppy dog either. (laughs) Although I'd probably end up hurting it. Definitely hurting myself. I don't know that I can somersault on the floor. Oh, I think you're capable. I don't know. Pushing 50. (laughs) I may not get back up again. Around this same time, acrobats would start joining the circus, many of whom were also clowns doing tumbling. An 1846 list of performers in the Welch and Mann's Celebrated Circus reveals how much the circus was changing featuring the names of equestrian riders, clowns, acrobats, a tumbler, a contortionist, comic singer, and banjo player. Glad they got the banjo player in there. That's important. Well, I mean, yeah. (laughs) Who doesn't like a good banjo player? (laughs) And we all know, I mean, eventually the circus is going to have orchestrations and all kinds of bands of their own. But I thought that was cute that he was on the tail end of that one. To be clear, there were plenty of unique acts like aerialists and acrobats performing before the circus was an official thing. Tightrope walking goes all the way back to ancient times, and hanging for ropes and swinging around does as well. When we use the term circus, we are really talking about the circus ring. There would be new innovations to come as the circus progressed through the 19th century, with things like a bar being added to hanging ropes, creating the trapeze. This was not originally meant for children and was occasionally considered pretty racy, as we told you guys in episode number one. Women could show their legs, performers were wearing skimpy costumes and tights. No one could show this much skin in public and get away with it. But the Scandal. S- I know. But the circus <laughs> could, and it, as I'd said before, it was titillating to the masses. Preachers around the country preached about the sinfulness of entertainment, especially the circus. Oh my... As we pointed out in the first episode, the menageries helped to deal with some of the preaching against the circus. Church people could go see the animals and not be scandalized. 
In the early 1800s, trained animals would become more a part of the circus. This officially started with a trained elephant in France in 1812. Elephants were the biggest attraction for any circus. The Ringling Circus eventually retired them all, and they live in this great reserve we found out that's just down the road from us about 30 minutes away. I know. I want to go see them. <laughs> I know. I had no idea that we had this retired animal reserve down there. That's awesome. And it's really cool. It has its own, they're continuing their breeding program because, I mean, they're trying to save the Asian elephant. Yeah, that's so important. I love that they're still continuing on with that. Jumbo was the most famous elephant in history. His very name became the way we describe very large objects, like the Jumbo Jet. His name is a combination of the Swahili words Jumbo, meaning hello, and Jombe, meaning chief. Jumbo is also the mascot for Tufts University. He was born in Sudan in 1860 and was exported to a zoo in Paris, Jardin de Plantes, after poachers killed his mother. He was transferred to the London Zoo in England in 1865. Barnum convinced the zoo to sell the huge elephant to him, and despite the protests of Londoners who loved their elephant, Barnum brought Jumbo to America for exhibition in 1882. He became the star of the circus, and Barnum used him as well as 20 other elephants to prove the Brooklyn Bridge was safe by walking them all over it together. It's an interesting way to prove that a a bridge is (laughs) going to hold cars. I suppose so. As we shared in the previous episode, Jumbo was killed in a train accident. He and the other elephants were being led back to their boxcar when a train struck him, causing a head injury. Tom Thumb's leg was broken in the accident. We found out that the hide eventually went to Tufts University, but was destroyed in a fire, and the skeleton was donated to the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, where it remains today. Yeah, so last episode, we weren't quite sure where it was. I'd heard that it was still around, so now we know. And I love our listeners, Kelly, because they always give us great suggestions. I had not heard of this elephant, but Jenny Aaron suggested him. And this is Tusco the Elephant. He followed in Jumbo's footsteps. He was shorter than Jumbo, but actually weighed more. Now, imagine this scene. A large elephant rampaging through a small town, followed by a drunk posse of men who could barely run. Good grief. Much less stop and catch a large pachyderm. The year was 1922, and the Algae Barn Circus was in the town of Cedro Woolley. Tusco and several other elephants were being cleaned and so had been unshackled. We all know that elephants are extremely smart, so Tusco decided to make a run for it. Oh boy. Widow Dietz would be the first to see the elephant as he trampled through her chicken coop. Oh my god. Getting chicken wire <laughs> caught on his tusks. Aw. Tusco continued into town drawing attention from the pool hall when his stampeding shook the building. Pappy Splane pulled the Washington magazine in 1985. All of a sudden, that whole goddamn building just shook. Oh my Somebody says, there's a mad elephant coming through. And he took off. We thought he was BSing, you know. But by God, the next time that thing shook, we realized he wasn't BSing. The elephant took out telephone poles, fences, and even a Model T. Oh, no. Hundreds of men and boys took up the pursuit, many of them taking poles off the moonshine along the way. My goodness, the story. It was like a crazy drunken parade, only one member was really big and dangerous. By 9 a.m. the following morning, the posse had trapped the elephant and the barn circus was paying out $20,000 in damages. Good grief. Tusco would move around a bit and unfortunately he came under the care of an abusive sideshow huckster. The mayor of Seattle ordered Tusco confiscated and moved to the Woodland Park Zoo where he enjoyed a peaceful life until his death from a blood clot in 1933. So the mayor had heard about this jerk yeah. and how he was abusing him. And he said, nope, you don't I'm get him anymore. I'm glad he stepped in. Yep. Tusco's skeleton is at the University of Oregon Museum of Natural History. Wow. So very cool. 
So, you know, when you see some of these skeletons in these nature museums, it does make you wonder where did they come from? Yeah. Now, you know, a couple of them have been circus elephants. Well, and I probably saw my first trip to New York. I probably did actually see the skeleton of Jumbo. I just didn't realize who he was. I'm sure you did. The Russian circus would become more prominent and influence future circuses when they opened their state college for circus and variety acts in 1927. Sports acrobat training would become the norm and performances would become more theatrical and choreographed. Eventually, music and special lighting would become more of the show as well. But even with all the music and lighting, it is the performers that make the circus. We've combined performers into their various groups and we'll spotlight a few of them or the families that are more prominent within those groups. Now, of course, we're not going to cover every single circus act that's out there because there are so many of them. Right. And we're not going to cover every single famous circus performer because, again, we'd be here for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) More than a three, four part miniseries. But these are some that you've probably heard of. And if not, they're some of our personal favorites. Definitely. That's why they're included. Of course, Kelly, we have to start with the Sideshow Freaks. We covered a lot of this also in episode number one, but we have some that we didn't talk about that we're going to share here as well. Equestrian acts seem to be where the circus originated. The reality is that the sideshow and the freaks that were a part of that really are where the circus started. Sideshow freaks or acts rose to prominence in the 16th century. This was an opportunity for people with disabilities or other hardships to profit from those while satisfying the morbid fascination of society. The sideshow had its own tent at the circuses with all varieties of people and acts to observe. While some of these presentations were racist in their roots, presenting indigenous people from other places as savages, many sideshow freaks were quite proud of what it was that made them unique, and some were performances that were strange. There were the strong men and women, sword swallowers, snake charmers, contortionists, fire breathers, knife throwing, lying on a bed of nails, and much more. I remember watching stuff like that on Ripley's Believe It or Not. Oh, absolutely. Odd people could be little people, very tall people, morbidly obese people, skeleton skinny people, Siamese twins, heavily tattooed people, people with odd growths, and etc. The sideshow has changed over the years, but still continues today. And as I said in the previous episode, I have several friends that are sideshow performers, and one of the well-known troops is headquartered right here in Florida, Phantasmagoria, Orlando. The founder of that group is actually a member of our spooktacular crew, John Dodonna. You guys have probably talked to him a few times in there. They are steampunk themed, so y'all know we love that. Absolutely. And we need to get to their show. I know. We bought tickets to go last year and then we... That was when we were bringing Savvy, our dog, home. We had to go to Georgia to pick her up because she had been away from us for a couple months. months, Yeah. So we really couldn't delay that any longer. Yeah. So we had to forego. I really wanted to go see that show so badly. Yeah. So I was like, I have tickets in hand finally, and I'm not going to be able to use them. Katie Sanduina was born to be a part of the circus, quite literally being born in the back of a circus wagon. She was born Katharina Brombach, and her father ran the circus. 
she eventually would perform in that circus, mostly challenging men to wrestle. She built up her strength and became stronger than most men. She could lift over 300 pounds above her head. During one of her performances in which she challenged men to defeat her, a Maxwell Heyman would jump on the stage and it must have been love at first sight. The way Max told it was, she picks me up once and throws me on the floor. And I say, Katie, I love you. Will you marry me? Can you imagine? <laughs> no, but I love that. That's awesome. And she did. The two were married for 52 years. He would become part of her act in which she would lift his smaller 165 pound body up with one hand above her head. She was a big girl and oh man, was she strong. Very strong. She would become the Lady Hercules and end up joining the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. She worked for them until she was 60. She would lift multiple men at once, bend iron bars with her hands, and resisted the pull of four horses. She would retire and move to Queens with Max, and they opened up a bar and grill, which they advertised as being owned by the world's strongest woman, and she would perform for patrons. She died on January 21st, 1952 from cancer. She was 67. General Tom Thumb was born Charles Stratton in 1838 in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He was born a rather big baby, weighing in over nine pounds. And That's you, not that big. I was going to say, and you know how to birth one of those. <laughs> one was over, one was almost. Wow. Well, big babies. For the first six months of his life, he grew normally, and then he just pretty much stopped. By the time he was four, he'd only grown another inch. He would never even make it to three feet tall. P.T. Barnum changed his life, as we mentioned in the first episode. Charles Stratton would put on a uniform and become General Tom Thumb. We got to see his boots at the museum when we, we were at the sure circus did. museum. They were, I mean, they looked like you were looking at little boys' boots. Yeah, they did. He became world famous and is credited with how people looked at the sideshow. Many thought of it as a dishonorable carnival attraction, but Stratton was an entertainer who sang and danced and cracked jokes. He showed that the sideshow and curiosities could be entertaining. He married Lavinia Warren, who was also a little person, and both got to meet President Lincoln at the White House. They went on to perform together. Stratton died unexpectedly at the age of 45 from a stroke on July 15, 1883. He was buried at Mountain Grove Cemetery in Bridgeport, and Barnum put a life-size statue of Stratton up on his grave. That's very cool. And unfortunately, some vandals damaged it and tore it down, but they did get it fixed and put back up again. Some people are just horrible. Schlitzy was born Simon Metz in 1901. He was born with microcephaly, which is a disorder where a person is born with an unusually small brain and skull. He also had intellectual disabilities and was only four feet tall. He wore a muumuu and his gender would be changed depending upon what part he was supposed to be playing. He was sometimes referred to as the missing link, the last of the Aztecs, or what is it? He loved to dance and mimic and was very successful on the sideshow circuit. And he worked for many circuses, including the Clyde Beatty Circus and Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey. He appeared in the cult classic Freaks and he died at the age of 70 in California. Have you ever seen that old movie, Freaks? I believe I have. It's really good. Yeah. I really enjoy it. Annie Jones was born in 1865 in Virginia. She had hirsutism, which meant that she had excessive growth of facial hair, and this would lead her to working with P.T. Barnum as the bearded lady. Annie started with him when she was just a toddler, and by the time she was five, she had sideburns, a mustache, and beard. She became the country's top bearded lady and was a spokesperson for her fellow freaks. She actually did not like that term, so she was trying to change it. Ah. But as I said in the other episode, it's now kind of become a term of endearment and people, you know, fly right. your freak flag. It's become a good exactly. thing. So, But of course, back then it wasn't necessarily that way. 
She died young at the age of 37 from tuberculosis. That's really young. Yeah. Jack Earl joined Ringling Brothers after he had an accident while making a silent movie. Earl was a giant of a man. He was born in 1906 and was over seven feet tall by the time he was 13 years old. Can you, I mean, no. his parents must have been like, whoa. Talk about going through some growth spurts and having to buy new clothes. I can't even imagine, you know, you hear about sometimes boys have a lot of pain in their bones when they're growing oh, fast. I, I'm certain hmm. he had to have had that. He traveled with the circus for 14 years and the claim was that he was eight foot six. He later became a salesman and died at the age of 46. So he was just slightly under Robert Wadlow, just a little bit shorter. Right. Fedor Jeftichu was born in 1868 in Russia. He had hereditary hypertrichosis, which meant he had excessive hair all over his body, particularly his face. Barnum discovered him at the age of 16 and brought him over to America and dubbed him Jojo the Dog Face Boy. He was well-spoken, but would play up the dog part by barking and snarling at people. He died at the age of 35 from pneumonia. Now from the sideshow freaks, we move to the daredevils. Many of the circus acts could be considered of the daredevil variety, but there have been some throughout the years that are classified specifically that way. So, yeah, I would say anybody walking across a tightrope or doing the trapeze or daredevils. (laughs) Absolutely. These are specifically considered daredevil type things. Right. There are many varieties from being shot from a cannon to doing tricks on bikes or vehicles and other apparatuses. There is also the Wheel of Death, which first showed up in the circus in the 1930s and consists of a large steel frame with circular hoop tracks at each end. This whole apparatus then rotates while the performer runs around the inside and the outside of the hoops. Bello Nock and Nick Walenda are a couple of performers who have used the wheel. The human cannonball has been done for decades and has had both male and female performers. One of the famous performers was Elvin Bale, who started doing the cannonball for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1978. An accident in 1983 left him paralyzed. Yeah, unfortunately, the cannonball has a lot of accidents with it that have left people paralyzed. Well, I would imagine it's very difficult to rotate your body just properly as you're shooting out of it to get a good landing. And that net has to be just Just in the perfect spot. Yeah. Because that's what most of them do. They overshoot the net. Until I was doing the research, I completely forgot about the Wheel of Death. I'm like, oh, what's the Wheel of Death? And I looked it up and looked at the pictures and went, oh, my God, I loved that when I was a kid, too. (sighs) I used to get so stressed watching it, but I really loved watching it also. You know, when you're a little kid, it's not necessarily as stressful as an adult because you don't really think about the danger of what was actually going on. (laughs) If they fall off that thing or it stops working or something. And eventually, Ringling's is going to change the name of that to the Wheel of Steel. They wanted to get that whole death thing out of there. They <laughs> I'm also, not surprised. There's also something else that is definitely one of my favorite circle acts, and that was the Globe of Death, which got changed to the Globe of Steel, too, eventually. Right. The globe is fashioned from welded steel mesh that is done in segments. The bottom panel of the globe is a trapdoor that allows motorcycles and performers to get inside. Most globes weigh 5,300 pounds and measure 16 feet, and performers use dirt bikes to ride around the inside of the globe. There are multiple riders, and they ride around the inside going faster and faster in circles as audiences hold their breath while riders pass right by each other. It always looks like their heads are about to knock each other or something. (laughs) I mean, it just seems like such a close proximity. I know. It's like, oh my gosh. The timing's incredible. Yes. 
Different acts work with different numbers of riders, but the record belongs to the Torres family, which made the record with eight bikes. Good grief. Doesn't seem like you'd have enough room to get them in there. I know. The first to present the Globe of Death was Thomas Eck, and this was in 1903. But the man credited with making it popular was Arthur Rosenthal, and he had a partner named Frank Lemon. These guys did tricks on bicycles and motorcycles, and the globe would be how they ended their act. Italian daredevil Guido Conzi introduced the sphere of fear. And then there were Germans and Brazilians and Australians. The riding in close quarters is dangerous enough, but now think about the effects of G-forces, Kelly. <laughs> I'd rather not. Because that's what they're working themselves into, or G-forces. Right, I know. And, and we know these pilots go up in the air and do all these, you know, steep dives and things, and they kind of pass out a little bit. It makes me a little bit lightheaded just imagining it, honestly. I'm sure, because you get a little motion sickness anyway. Yes. Riders will use their peripheral vision or concentrate on a center point on the globe to help prevent nausea and such. Now, we just mentioned the Torres family and their record of eight bikes in the globe at once. This is a family of cousins, brothers, and a sister from Paraguay. Carmen Torres Colasa is that sister. She was the first woman to ride in the globe of death. Carmen and her husband Joe are two of the owners of the Owl Ringling Mansion in Baraboo, Wisconsin. We got the chance to visit with Carmen here, and boy, was I absolutely delighted. Definitely. This woman is a bad, and you know what I would throw on the end of that if this was not a, a family bee. show? <laughs> bad bee. <laughs> <laughs> Here, I'm going to go ahead and play a little bit from her. Well, I have to tell you, Carmen, one of my favorite acts when I would go to see the circus was you guys doing the motorcycles in the Globe of Death. That was just amazing to me. Oh, my God. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, me and my brothers were doing it. It's motorcycle. How many years did you have to practice and everything before you were ready to get in there and actually perform it in front of people? For one year. Were you ever yeah. scared when you were doing it? Yeah, but it is, you know, when I am 11 or maybe 12, I, I started riding a motorcycle. But then when I got here in 2006, I had to four years, one year. Wow. Now, yeah. Joe said you occasionally had accidents. Did you ever have an accident yourself? Well, yeah, we have. You know, like, know all the time, but we have a couple accidents. But, you know, like, you know, it's, it's a lot of motorcycles. It's motorcycles. No, you know, never know when it's going to be, you know, like, it's going to happen sometime, you know, like. And your record was eight motorcycles in there at one time? Yeah, eight motorcycles at one time. It doesn't even seem like eight could fit in that globe. That's just amazing. Yeah, there's no room there, but like, you know, like we all together inside, so, um, you know, like a four start going up and the other one going, you know, like we had to go apart, you know, like we had to do like in three times, everybody going up. So if they ever asked you to do it again, would you? Yeah, I did last year. Uh, we are friends here in, in the Dell uh, and in Tommy Barley show. Okay. But there's just only two motorcycles. So one girl is standing in the middle and then one with the other guy I drive motorcycles. I like it. I like it. It's fun. You know, like it's for me, it's perfect. You know, like it's all summer. Uh-huh. So a lot of, a lot of fun for me. <laughs> I'm afraid to get on a motorcycle on the road. I can't imagine doing tricks. <laughs> yeah. Take a, a lot of practice, but when you got it, you got it. You know, like, you know. <laughs> It's like after three years, I went to work there in Tammy Barley show last year. And it's just like, I just go inside. It's just like, I never, I work like, I just doing like, I never stop. 
as you heard there, I know it's a little hard to understand. Obviously, English is her second language. She hadn't ridden in three years, but it was like getting back on a regular bike for her to get on there. That is so cool. It just came to her. You'll hear more from Carmen on the next episode about the hauntings she has experienced while living in the Al Ringling Mansion. And boy, does she have some stories. I can't wait for that. Mauricia de Tears was one of the highest paid stars of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. She was a French daredevil during the early 20th century. Her main mode of stunts was through the automobile. Her signature routine was called the dip of death. This crazy woman would drive a small car down a ramp and into a loop-de-loop, then jump a large gap while upside down and then land safely on the other side. This is like watching your kids playing with the little loop-de-loop in their matchbox cars. Only she was doing it with a real car. Yeah. A New York journalist wrote of the act, All the other acts that make hearts cease to throb looked about as harmless as a game of tiddlywinks indoors compared to that trip that Mademoiselle Mauricia does with her Made in Paris automobile. I can't. (laughs) I would imagine it. (laughs) I mean, I've seen posters with it. Right. And I thought, no way. But she did it. Oh, my word. And she lived. Didn't kill her ever. When you hear about some of this. It just blows my mind sometimes. When you hear about any of these acts, it's like, where in their minds did they start creating that? And then how do you practice that and perfect it? Oh, my gosh. Even as we get into some of these other things that they're going to be doing on the tightrope and stuff, it's like, at what point do you come up with that idea and then try it and actually have it work and then do it over and over again? Very creative people that. Either brave or crazy. (laughs) Yeah, they just have this extreme desire. (laughs) Zazel was the first human cannonball and ladies, it was a lady. Isn't that amazing to have the first cannonball flyer there to be a woman. She did this feat at the age of 16 at the Royal Aquarium. She climbed into a cannon and was blasted 70 feet into the air and then into a net. Springs and tension in the barrel pushed her out of the cannon and fireworks were set off to make it sound like an explosion from the cannon. The cannon would go on to be improved using compressed air. And that's what we learned about how that was. Right. We got to see one of the original cannonball trucks. They, yeah, it was so cool. It's like they have the cannon on the back of this big truck. And that's how we found out how they did it. Because I'd always wondered. I'm like, how do they fire them out of that? And it's just right. compressed air. I didn't know if it was a bungee inside mm-hmm. or, or what. Zazel unfortunately flew past the safety net during one of the stunts and broke her back, which forced her to have to retire. As we mentioned in episode one, the first animal that was a part of the circus was the horse. And so we're going to talk about one of the famous equestrians. Mayworth was a trick rider by the time she was 10 years old. She would become one of the greatest female acrobats on horseback of all time. She was born in Australia in 1894, and after her parents were separated, she was adopted by a sister of the Worth brothers, who owned the largest circus in Australia. She started with tumbling acts and wire walking, but was soon riding horses and trying her acrobatics on the back of the horse. One of John Ringling's talent scouts spotted her and brought her on with the Barnum and Bailey Circus in 1912. She would mesmerize crowds as she did backflips from horse to horse. She was injured in 1913, but bounced back and traveled with the Carl Hagenbeck Circus. In 1917, she was with the Ringling Brothers Circus and then stayed on as the Ringling Circus combined with Barnum & Bailey. She stayed with them until 1927. She would perform with other circuses and even did a scene for an opera. She retired in 1937 and passed away in 1978 in Sarasota. So Kelly, what did you think of the clowns at the circus? I 
like the clowns. Clowns don't scare me. Yeah, I when they're freaky kind of clowns. Well, I even like scary clowns when it comes to Halloween. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. The freaky clowns scare me a little bit, but I don't ever remember being afraid of the clowns when I was a kid. No. And the really cool thing is they would come right up into the stadium seating. Oh, yeah. And hang on the rails. Get and right up in your face and interact yes, with you. <laughs> wave with you and talk to you. It was, it was so much fun. And Debbie had mentioned to us that we were going to be having lunch with this Peggy Williams, who we were like, oh, okay, great. Didn't really know who that would be. When we were looking at that mural that was right when you walked into the circus museum, She there's these three female clowns that are poking their head out of a door. And she goes, that one on top is Peggy Williams. And that's who we're having lunch with. And we're like, oh. <gasps> You're really? kidding. <laughs> that was so cool. Yeah. So and she was so funny. She was. We're going to share a little bit about her in, in just a bit here. Early clowns would be more like stand up comics who would feature parody songs and jokes. They would evolve into juggling acts and presenting shows with trained animals. Clowns have always been important because they bring human contact to the audience. They also were able to deal with the political climate of the times with their acts. One of those clowns even ran for office, the highest office president of the United States. So that kind of blew my mind when you told me that. Yeah, you could literally, <laughs> if he'd been elected, you could say uh, the president of the United States is a clown and it would literally be true. <laughs> true. <laughs> the clown was Dan Rice. And you probably heard us mention the Dan Rice Circus in the first episode. Yep. And in 1867, he was the circus's most famous clown. Rice had joined the circus in the 1840s and his comedic performances earned him the title of the great American humorist. He did not employ much physical comedy, which is really what clowns will come to be known for. But his sexual illusions, jokes, and ad-libs had audiences in stitches. Rice eventually died in obscurity in 1900, even though he had once been so famous and was more than likely the model for Mark Twain's clown in the book Huckleberry Finn. There are different varieties of clowns. There were character clowns, white-faced clowns, and austere clowns. And those are the ones that just have white around their mouths and eyes. Ah, okay. Emmett Kelly was the hobo clown and known by the name Weary Willie. He played a sad clown with big bulbous nose and face paint that gave him a mournful mouth surrounded by a five o'clock shadow. He wore tattered clothes and floppy shoes. He didn't start out as a clown and Weary Willie actually started as a cartoon character he drew. His work with the circus started as a trapeze artist and then in 1923 he brought Weary Willie to life as a clown act. One of his favorite things to do was to sweep the spotlight away and then get surprised when it appeared again. I've seen that act done so many times. I have too. <laughs> he was the originator. Yes. He worked for numerous circuses, one of which will be featured in our ghost stories, the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus. He joined Ringling Brothers in 1942 and stayed with them until the late 1950s. He would star in a couple of films. He died in 1979 of a heart attack while taking out the garbage, and I'm sure he would have found great comic use for that. Kelly was a hero. He helped to save people during the Hartford Circus Fire and was featured in a picture in Life magazine about the tragedy as he was running with a bucket of water. This is one of the few times people saw him cry. Lou Jacobs was probably the most famous clown to work with Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey and is the one our listeners are probably most familiar with as he was used in lots of marketing and appeared on a 1966 U.S. postage stamp. Virginia and Debbie talk a little bit about Lou in this clip, and then you hear me get inside a replica of the little clown car he used to squeeze his tall 6-foot-11-inch frame inside of. He yeah, he was her mentor. Yes. Oh, wow. She has some great stories about that. She said that he had um, a keyhole that was like the size of a tennis racket that he could put himself through. Whoa. It was a contortionist. <laughs> it was a German immigrant. My goodness. His wife's still alive. 
I've seen her. I just saw pictures of her. She just went to Cir Circus Sarasota yeah. Yeah, a few days ago. And then he had two daughters, Lou and, and Dolly. And then he told you about Dolly she, and Pedro do the circus arts. And the other daughter is married to, I can I never remember her name. Anyway, they have elephants still. And this is the car that you can get in if you wish. You're tall. After you. I've had both of you. At once? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Awesome. <laughs> Good, I'm not six foot. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? And that one is actually supposed to be a little bit bigger than yeah. well, that's his actual one. Yeah. How in the world did he do that? Like, hurry up and take a picture. And Kelly, do you remember watching me get into that car? <laughs> of course I do. I'm five foot four and had a hard time. You certainly did. So I can't even imagine. <laughs> we'll have to get that picture up on Instagram too. Yes. So as you heard there, Jacobs was a German immigrant. He played the part of a clown for 62 years, and 60 of them were spent with the Ringling Circus. I'm imagining he had the longest-running career with them. It sounds like it would have been. His parents had a song and dance act, and he got into gymnastics as a child, which led him into barrel jumping and contortionism, as you heard Virginia mentioning how he could go through that keyhole that was the size of a tennis right. racket. Boy. Jacobs came to America in 1923, and he found work as an acrobat. He started working for The Greatest Show on Earth in 1925, and it was there that he moved into clowning. He modeled his clown makeup on Europe's greatest circus stars, the Fratellinis. Rather than whiteface, they used a flesh-colored base. These were three brothers who worked mostly in France from the 1900s to the 1920s. Jacobs had many gags, including not only his two-foot-by-three-foot small car, and he did start that whole clown car thing. He was the first one to do that. But also a self-propelled bathtub and a couple of little dogs. <laughs> He wore a costume that was pink and lavender check suit with 12-inch collars, and his shoes were really big. He married Ringling showgirl Jean Rockwell, and they had two daughters, Luann and Dolly, whom we will talk about later. Jacobs retired in 1985 when he was 82 years old. That's so fantastic. He was clowning a, up until yeah, then. Yeah, what a long career. Although he continued to teach at Ringling Brothers and Barnum & Bailey Clown College even after he retired from clowning. In 1987, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus. He died of heart failure on September 13th, 1992 in, of course, Sarasota, Florida. He was 89 years old. We had the great honor of eating lunch with the first woman to ever be hired by Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey as a clown. Peggy Williams was the first female graduate of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Circus Clown College in 1970. She didn't start out with clowning, though. She was a speech pathology major at the University of Wisconsin, majoring in deaf education. A friend directed her toward the Clown College, saying she would be the perfect fit for it, and she thought that perhaps it might teach her nonverbal communication skills. We'll let Peggy tell the rest of her story here. I finished in 1970, I finished in the University of Wisconsin in my four years. And that happened to be a horrible semester to finish a week of great college memories with. Someone blew up a building on the campus, somebody died. It was the Kent State year when four people in Kent State died the same two-week period. There were protests, there was tear gas, we had National Guard occupation, bayonets in the classroom. I mean, it was like, all of a sudden we were in a war zone. I was going to stay for one more year and finish my master's, right? I've got to get out of here. And someone said, oh, I know where you can go. Here, check this out. And he handed me the Sunday paper, Great Magazine, with 
two paragraphs, maybe that big of an article, that said they were taking girls into Con College for the first time ever, and I went, what? And he said, that's perfect for you. You've got to go. Forget grad school. Go, go. So I applied and I got in. I got in the Greyhound bus. I went all the way from Wisconsin, there by Canada, to Florida, down here by Cuba, and went uh, down in Venice to Con College. Yeah, and when I broke my foot the third day, and they said, You're not eligible for a contract, you need to go home. I thought, I just canceled this semester in grad school. I have an apartment for two months. Let me stay. I'll be helpful. I'll be out of the way. I'll sit in the seats. Let me audit the classes. So they did. They said, just so, go through the whole eight or ten weeks. I got to help everybody, a little sewing machine, you know, little, little singer. So then they offered me a contract as a, the day after the, the graduation. I got my cast off three days before the graduation so I could be in a number or two. Just kind of like a wallpaper. But I don't know, I must have been good wallpaper because Mr. Fouts wanted to see me before I... Got on the Greyhound to go home. And so I said, Oh, but I'm not eligible for a contract, so I'll just go, I'll just go home. And I said, No, 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 we're going to pick you up. And he wants to talk to you. Okay, so I got ready to move out of my apartment. Got in the little station wagon with the wooden sides that yeah, the yeah, it was a, one of those sideboard cars. We went to the arena, which was an old airport hangar down in Venice. Um, and it, when it came, like, we all sat in the seats, and he had his office upstairs, and one of the time we'd go up there to say thank you, goodbye, see you later, whatever. And, and he said, sit down, sit down, sit down. Okay. He said, this is Urban Fell, who died in 1984. But he had the best, the best pens to write with, and the best way to communicate with someone I've ever seen. I'm already a millionaire, you know, and I'm like probably student with a huge pile of debt. So we're like equals, except I'm getting old. <laughs> and he said, "Well, how, what would you say if we told you we want to offer you a contract and on the first unit that goes out uh, as the first girl?" And I said, but I'm not eligible. I'm telling a millionaire who has all the decision making power. I said, yeah, I'm not eligible for a contract, but you know, of course I wanted one, but I'm you not. Know, you know, he said, I'm like all ears because I'm going to be on the Greyhound thinking about it for days. Right? And he said, I own the show. It's not a democracy. I can change my mind, and I did. I'm like, oh, so my whole future. Yeah. And then he did this classic thing. You see this in movies where someone has a paper for you in a folder, and they just shove it straight across the desk, and when you open it, the reading is right side up for your eyes. It, it was. He'd done it a million yeah, times for me. It was. And he shoved it. And I remember that. And then he reached inside his beautiful jacket and he pulled out this fat pen that was so easy to write with. It was like, oh, I want the pen. <laughs> In my mind, I didn't even say that to him. I said, this is a beautiful pen. And he said, well, you can use it. <laughs> What were the exits? Right on the bottom line. I, I, so I signed a contract and I, then I went to the Greyhound station, went home and put all my stuff there, brought back what I needed for winter quarters, and that time I flew. I flew back. 
right? Because you can't take a lot. My whole home was a bunk. It was, it was like the distance from this table maybe to the other corner of that table, and it was 36 inches wide. And there was a hallway down the middle of the train. Yeah. Talking about my train room, right? Yeah. It was very small. And the girl across from me, hers was very small. And the girl upstairs from hers, and, and so there was two high bunks in the hallway. You know, so I was in a single girl's car with people that worked in wardrobe and who were paying quarters. And the clown, I was the only clown, but they were dancers and all that kind of stuff. So it was really fun. I loved, I loved that experience living in a bunk. But there was no, no door. <laughs> it was a curtain. So you just, you just live on very little. And that's why you don't need a footlocker. Where are you going to store it? Trains aren't made for suitcases, right? You have to, it's all cubby holes, little yeah. things that every single inch is used. So that was fun. We know it was hard to hear with the background noise at the restaurant. Peggy broke her foot right when she got into clown college and they were going to send her home, but they let her stick around and Feld offered her a contract. And the rest is history, as she made the circus her life and still works for them today at the Circus Museum as an archivist. And as you guys could hear in that clip, she was just a joy. She was a hoot. I had so much fun with her. And she told us some crazy stories. She did. It was a lot, a lot of fun. Next, let's go on to the people that I think are darn crazy. <laughs> the tightrope walkers. I'm afraid of heights. I am too when it comes to that type of thing. And they had at the circus museum, there was a tightrope that was about, I don't know, six <laughs> inches off the ground. Where I ate it. You did eat it. But you got almost all the way across it. You just, almost. you would have, you know, hit the end of the rope and gone flying out into the audience. But <laughs> you walked across the whole thing. Instead, I just slammed into a wall. <laughs> you did. <laughs> I have that recording, oh, but I don't think I'll use it. I don't care. At least that's a real pratfall. <laughs> <laughs> you always was. play the recording of me supposedly falling and people think it's really me falling. <laughs> yeah, this, so be, at least this was like a, an actual thing this, that happened. This is really Kelly falling into the wall. <laughs> no, the wall just jumped up and hit me. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. <laughs> you did manage to hit the little button at the end to show that you'd finished I before did. you hit the wall. <laughs> I don't know how these people do this, especially without a net. Oh, Lord. I mean, you look at how mm -hmm. wide that rope is, because when we look up, we can't see what the size of it is. And when you get a feel for it there at the museum, oh, my gosh. Well, I, I have terrible balance anyway, so I'm uh, already challenged. I just don't even. Tightrope walking is officially known as funambulism, and it dates back to ancient Greece. Say that ten times fast. No, I'm not. Good grief. Funus means rope, and ambular means to walk. In ancient times, tightrope walkers were revered, but would move to being something jesters would perform. And during the late 1600s in England, tightrope walkers would work with con men to rob people. Oh, wow. They would be the distraction while pickpockets would work the crowd. It eventually became a circus act that has become a crowd favorite. I had no idea. I didn't know that they used it to, to con people. Definitely not. We don't think there is any more famous name in the circus than the Flying Melindas. The claim is that this multi-generational performing family goes all the way back to 1780. That's amazing. I, I mean, know. You talk about generations doing it. Absolutely. And it's cool because I looked up a family tree and just how many of them. It's not just like one of them went on to do it. It's like the whole family's doing it. Very cool. Definitely a family affair. 
The Walendas started their circus history in America in 1928, when Carl Walenda and his troupe joined the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. John Ringling had seen them perform in Cuba, and he signed them to a contract. Their signature act was a seven-person pyramid that they presented for the first time in 1948. Carl started performing when he was six. He started with acrobatics and then moved to the high wire. He developed a seven-person pyramid that made the family superstars, and we begin the solo walks over various locations. And that just is terrifying. <laughs> no kidding, because what this is, is basically you have three people on the main wire, and they're all holding the poles mm-hmm. that uh, are keeping their balance, and then they have poles that go across them. Over their shoulders. Yes, and then yeah. there's two people who are standing on those, mm-hmm. and then they've got their little balancing things, and then there's a chair on top of those two people, and then there's somebody sitting up in that I chair. I know. I feel like I need to go dye my, my gray hairs just thinking about it. It's like, who sat down and went, you know, this would be kind of a cool <laughs> act. And then how do you practice that? Right. Definite daredevils. I'm sure that they started off doing that just a foot off the ground or something of that nature. And then you think, okay, well, we got it done that one time. Phew, we made the record. Never doing that again. And they did it over and over again. Carl walked above the Tallulah Gorge in Georgia, Veterans Stadium in Philly, and he broke the world's wire walking distance record when he walked 1,800 feet at Kings Island Amusement Park. His great-grandson, Nick Walenda, would go on to greater feats and break that record in 2008. Carl would die at the age of 73 when he was attempting to walk between the two towers of the Condado Plaza Hotel in Puerto Rico and fell from the wire. Nick would make the same attempt and complete it. Other members of the troupe died during a performance in 1962. And that was when they were doing the seven-person pyramid. Oy. The guy at the very front at the bottom lost his footing. Oh, man. And as hard as it is to believe, only two of them died. One was permanently paralyzed from the waist down, and the rest just clung to the wire until staff could bring over a net to catch them all. Carl didn't like the family performing over nets because he felt it would make the performers lazy. Nick and his sister Luana continued to perform. They had a serious accident in 2017 while attempting to break a record, and Luana broke every bone in her face. And we saw a video with her... And her face, I think her jaw was still wired shut. Yes, it was. And I can't even remember. She said something like she had 82 screws and a bunch of plates Plates, in her face. What they were trying to do was an eight-person pyramid. Right. And it was during a rehearsal, so it wasn't in front of a bunch of people. In 2019, she joined Nick in successfully crossing New York's Times Square 25 stories high. The pair wore safety harnesses as this was Luana's return to live performing after her accident. Nick has also crossed Niagara Falls and lots of other places. After that seven-person pyramid accident, they weren't ever going to do it again, but they did perform it, I think, two or three times after that. Oh, wow. Next up, we have some more daredevils, those trapeze artists. There are multiple forms of trapeze. It can be static, swinging, flying, or spinning. Most of us think of the short ropes with a bar in between them, with performers flying from one to the other and catching each other as they hang from the bar. There is usually always a safety net in place in case an artist falls, but it wasn't always this way. Jules Léotard was a French gymnast who created the Trapeze Act. He presented it for the first time in 1859 at Paris's Cirque Napoléon and called it La Course aux Trapeze. And I'm sure I said that wrong, but I don't speak French, so. He became the toast of Europe. 
He created a costume that helped him perform better, and that is named for him today, the leotard. The more you know. The more you know. The flying concellos were Antoinette and Arthur, whom were a married couple. Antoinette was living in a convent when her sister invited her to join her with the Ringling Circus in the 1920s. Their trapeze act was one of Ringling's most popular attractions, and Antoinette was called the greatest woman flyer of all time. She was the first woman to complete a triple somersault in the air. She went on to become Ringling's aerial director and retired in 1983. Acrobats were some of the first circus performers, and the Nelson family were acrobats who got their start on the streets of London. They performed with some circuses like the Dan Rice Circus and then formed their own that they called the Nelson's Great World Combination Show. This operated until 1894. They joined the Ringling Circus for several years and worked with other circuses off and on. They are one of the most famous acrobat families and were the ones to develop Ricely, or foot juggling, in which one performer lies on his back and then tosses another performer around and all about with their feet. I'm sure you've seen that a few times. I have. It looks like it wouldn't be much fun for the person getting tossed around. <laughs> yeah, it may be a little bit painful. Make sure you wash your feet first. Ew. <laughs> And then there's the aerialists. Aerialists fall under a variety of acts from aerial silks, aerial hoop, hammock, chains, rope, rings, and more. This is both an art form and a show of strength as aerialists perform great feats several feet above the ground without safety nets. I think aerial silks are my favorite. They're so pretty. Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Lillian Lietzel was born as Leopoldina Alitza Pelican in Germany. Her family were all circus performers, and she joined her mother's aerobatic circus group known as the Leamy Ladies. She would perform on the trapeze and also do aerial acrobatics, and she joined Barnum and Bailey in 1910. She left for a while, but would return when the Ringling Brothers merged with Barnum and Bailey, and she would become famous. She was one of the headliners and would wow the crowds with her performances. Her specialty was holding onto a ring, hanging from a rope, and perform multiple one-arm plangs over and over. And she facilitated this by dislocating her shoulder over uh, and over. Oh and God. that over and over means more than a hundred times, Kelly. Oh, Lord. I mean, I don't even know how she had a rotator cuff. <laughs> I mean, it makes my shoulders hurt just thinking about it, honestly. And if you guys Google her, I'm sure you'll find some video because there are videos out there right. of her doing it. And it just, it's hard to watch because it's like, it ow. Is. She knew she was a star and she could act the part, and she demanded her own private Pullman car that also had a baby grand piano. She was married three times, and her final marriage was to trapeze artist Alfredo Cadona. They had a contentious relationship. Tragedy struck in 1931 when Lietzel fell from a rigging when the swivel broke that held the rope and she hit the ground. She lingered for two days before dying. Alfredo would marry again and end up separating, and in a horrible set of circumstances, he shot his estranged wife and then himself. Wow. And I'm going to see if I can find a picture of the memorial that he had built for Lillian Lietzel. It is absolutely gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's like she's reaching up into the sky and going up into the air. There's a couple of rings that are below it. One of them's broken. Right. But it's a really cool memorial. So I'll see if I can find that and put that up on Instagram. Dolly Jacobs became one of the most famous circus stars, following in the footsteps of her parents. We talked about her father, Lou the Clown, but her mother was also in the circus and performed as an aerialist as well. She was eight weeks into her first run with the circus in 1948 when she fell from the rings 50 feet to the ground. She spent three years in a cast and was told she would never walk again, but she did. So it was a bit surprising that Dolly would decide to go the route of being an aerialist too. Dolly had said, we always loved the circus and dreamed of being in it. 
but Papa insisted that we stay at home with Mother in Sarasota. I never really liked school. I was kind of an outsider because I was with the circus. She left Ringling in 1984 and joined the Big Apple Circus and performed with them through the rest of the 1980s. She married another circus performer, Pedro Reese, and as you heard Debbie mention earlier, they founded Circus Sarasota. This was in 1997. We mentioned the elephants earlier, but there were a lot of animal performers in the circus. There were. Not many of them had really famous names or anything like that. They definitely had some famous animal trainers to go with them. Isaac A. Van Amberg entered a cage with several big cats in 1833 and is generally considered to be the first wild animal trainer in American circus history. It would be his training and presentation of animals that would end up combining the menagerie and the circus performances into one. So as we'd said, you always had like the zoo tent over here. Right. The only time they would really be a part of the circus is when they had the parade coming into town or that kind of thing. So he's going to be the first one to say, let's bring them out of the tent and in here and have them do some things. Not bad for a guy who started out as a cage cleaner at the Zoological Institute of New York. He would add daring to his act by placing his arm and head inside the mouth of a big cat. So, Kelly, you've probably seen the cartoons when we were growing up where you'd have the lion tamer cracking his whip and he'd open the lion's mouth and put his head inside of it. Right. This guy really Really did did that. (laughs) He's the first one. And now so many followed in his footsteps doing the same thing. He became known as the Lion King, but historians do point out that the moniker revealed a way of training that was more domineering and not kind. People might like to follow in his step with the tricks and things, but definitely not with the training. He was not a nice man. Yeah, he wasn't good about the way he was training the animals. In the mid-1840s, he had the largest circus in England and in America. He had one of the 11 traveling shows in 1861. In 1868, a fire killed all of his animals. Van Amberg had already died three years earlier from a heart attack. Ephraim F. Thompson was a black elephant trainer who worked with the Four Paw Circus. He was born in Michigan in 1859. He eventually got on with the Adam Fourpaw Circus and showed a real skill with the elephants. Fourpaw hired him as an elephant trainer, but since he was black, he had to take a backseat position to Addie Fourpaw, who was Fourpaw's son. F. left for Carl Hagenbeck's International Circus in 1887. In 1895, he joined Circus Salomonsky Moscow and developed an act where he did a tightrope trick between two elephants that were holding the rope. Another unbelievable act that he developed was a somersaulting elephant. Can you imagine? I don't think I've ever seen an (laughs) elephant do that. I've seen them stand on their head, but no, I don't think I've ever seen one do a somersault. Uh Uh-uh. F came to be known as the first great American elephant trainer who trained elephants in a very humane way. He died in Egypt in 1909. The person I remember most from my young visits to the circus was Gunther Gable Williams. Did you ever get to see him perform? I certainly did. From 1968 to 2001, he was probably the most celebrated circus performer of his generation, and he was probably the greatest animal trainer of the 20th century. He was born in 1934 in a German town that is today part of Poland. His childhood was not happy. He grew up during World War II with a father who not only was a drunk, but very abusive. Circus Williams had a permanent wooden structure in Cologne, and Gunther's mother took him to see it, and while they were there, she applied for a job as a seamstress. She was hired and Gunther would spend the next 20 years with Circus Williams. One of the great things the circus did was to hide Jews within the traveling circus. And once Gunther's mother decided the circus was not for her and left, they took him under their wings and they became his family. Gunther was put in charge of taking care of the horses. A great animal trainer was employed by the circus as well. And this was Charlie Bauman. 
He was an expert with the big cats. Patriarch of the Circus Williams was killed during an act, and Gunther was sent off to the Matriarch's brother's circus, where Gunther learned elephant training. That brother was Franz Althoff, and he could direct a herd of 13 elephants with his voice and the tip of a cambriere, which is basically a little bit of a whip. Gunther returned to Circus Williams the next year and took over their elephant herd. He developed the teeterboard trick in which he was propelled by one elephant onto the back of another. I remember watching him do that. I do, too. He also learned to jump from the ground onto the back of a galloping horse. I remember watching him do that, too. In 1955, Miss Yvonne joined the circus with a group of lions. Gunther filled in for her for a performance, and he fell in love with training the cats. He developed an act with a tiger named Bengali and an elephant named Congo. The act became a sensation. He would add another elephant and two more tigers. He married the Williams' daughter, Jeanette, in 1961, which was fitting since he was already considered family. He took on the name Gunther Gable Williams after that. Gunther bought a group of eight tigers in 1968 to expand his act further, and Jeanette helped him as an assistant. Around the same time, Irvin and Israel Feld had bought the Ringling Circus, and they wanted a new star for the second unit. Gunther would be that star, and Irvin Feld would sign him to a four-year contract for $2 million. Gunther brought his new wife, Sigrid, and stepdaughter, Tina, along with 17 elephants, 9 tigers, 38 horses, and a few assorted animals. The felts would give him his signature look of bleach blonde, well-shaven and flamboyant costumes. Because he had a goatee when he was doing the circus in Europe and stuff. Gotcha. Gunther developed a small cat act, and that became his favorite. He did a farewell tour in 1990 and left the circus only to return again for a 10-city performance in 1994. And then he replaced his son, Mark Oliver, for one show in 1998. Mark had to go see his baby being born. So dad filled in. Precious. In between those, he had heart surgery. And then in 2000, he developed a brain tumor. He had surgery and underwent chemotherapy, but it took his life on July 19th, 2001. Mark continued on in the big cage until 2004 when he left the circus. Mabel Stark was a famous female tiger tamer in a world dominated by men. She was born in 1889 in Tennessee and was orphaned at the age of 17. She moved in with an aunt and then became a nurse in Louisville. That didn't suit her, and she became a dancer with carnivals. In 1911, she joined the Algie Barn Circus and worked as a horseback rider, but she fell in love with the big cats. She fell in love with their trainer and married him as well. Soon, she was presenting the tiger act herself. In 1916, Mabel was attacked while rehearsing with a lion. Her face was mauled, and he grabbed her arm and started rolling with her, so it ended up breaking her arm. This was her third mauling, and they managed to get her free by firing blanks at the lion. She joined Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey in 1922 and was with them until they banned wild animal acts in 1925. She would be horribly mauled again in 1928, but she always returned to the ring. She worked with the Tigers for 60 years. Mabel died on April 20th, 1968, after overdosing on barbiturates. So sad. Yeah, and I have a feeling it was probably because of pain. She was mauled and broken I would imagine. many, many, many times. And on to the ringmasters. Our masters of ceremonies. <laughs> what you, the, the part you played at the very top of the episode, <laughs> Kelly, and really cute. The first time we took my niece to Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, she was probably two or three. We got home and that night she got up on top of the ottoman and she was like... Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And it was like, oh, no. I could totally picture Jordan doing that. Yes, it was so cute. (laughs) Harold Ronk was a long-serving ringmaster for Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. He was their singing ringmaster for 30 years. And I remember him. I do, too. 
He was born in 1921 in Canton, Illinois. He studied music and theater and joined the circus in 1950. He was known as the voice of the circus and retired in 1981. He died on August 2nd, 2006 in Canton, Illinois. So he was born and died in the same city. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And then I definitely remember this guy, Jonathan Lee Iverson. He was the first black ringmaster and worked for Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey for 20 years. He started his career with the Boys Choir of Harlem. That group performed before many world dignitaries, preparing him for his greatest act to mesmerize the families of America who came to the circus. Can you believe this, Kelly? He was only 22 years old when the circus hired him. Wow. And he helped Ringlings to set box office records. Syndicated columnist Liz Smith said of him, I blank, 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 liked six foot five youngest ringmaster ever, Jonathan Lee Iverson, who was commanding enough to be noticed in the melee and he can sing. So he was so noticeable to her that it didn't matter that you had three rings going on and whatever. He was doing it. He stood out. So then, of course, the circus closed down. He was their final ringmaster and he went on to perform in theater after the circus closed. Makes you wonder, who are they bringing back as ringmaster? Huh. I don't know. We shall see. More will be revealed. All right, so we need to have some ghost stories to go with this. And generally speaking, when you have some ghost stories, you have to have a little bit of tragedy. This first one was suggested by Jennifer Rodriguez, and it's the 1915 circus train disaster. When the Con T. Kennedy shows were in town, newspapers would report immense crowds. The Charlotte newspaper reported in April of 1917, thousands of lights are used in illumination, the carnival field presenting the effect of a great mass of brilliancy. The show is the largest the arrangement best, the exhibits and attractions the most engaging of any carnival ever held in Charlotte. But just a couple of years before this, the Conti Kennedy Carnival Show would suffer a devastating tragedy. The traveling circus had been having a very successful fall and had just wrapped up the Harvest Festival in Atlanta. The show train was 28 cars long and full of both animals and performers several of whom were not officially recorded because circuses were very transient at this time with people coming and going. The group was heading to Phoenix, Arizona, and was outside Columbus, Georgia, when tragedy struck at 1.26 in the afternoon of November 22, 1915. A still passenger train slammed into the circus train with both traveling 30 miles per hour. The passenger train held up well against the crash with no fatalities, but the circus train was devastated. The engines of both trains fused together. They hit so hard. Dang. People were trapped in the front of the train, and Con Kennedy led a group of performers in an attempt to save them. This was far worse than just being trapped. A fire started. Two of the carnival performers, Fred and Myrtle Kemp, could not get free, so they passed their daughter out to rescue workers. The child survived while they died. Two carloads of animals went up in flames as well. When the fire was finally out after several hours, there were 50 Kennedy Carnival workers injured with an undetermined amount of dead. Nobody knew real names or how many people were actually on the train. Some victims had been thrown and were unrecognizable. One victim had a mysterious story to go along with his death because he was a she. The clothing and androgynous look left people thinking the victim was a man until it was clear that this was a woman. She'd clearly disguised herself as a man to be a part of the circus. 
There was a mass funeral at Columbus's First Baptist Church, and then bodies were placed in a mass grave at Riverdale Cemetery. The Carnival's band played on borrowed instruments. The mass grave can be found directly across from South Commons in Columbus. Con Kennedy erected the memorial, and it reads, Erected by Con T. Kennedy Shows in memory of their comrades who lost their lives in a railroad wreck near Columbus, Georgia, November 22, 1915. The passenger train's conductor was found at fault because he ignored orders to stop for the show train. The train wreck has led to alleged hauntings. Every October, there is the annual fair hosted on the South Commons in Columbus. Many fairgoers probably don't even know about the wreck lending credibility to their stories. In the early 1990s, a woman and her six-year-old son boarded the Ferris wheel and soon felt as though they were not alone. Other riders on the Ferris wheel have claimed to see a male and female in period clothing riding in an empty car on the Ferris wheel. There are other reports of people wandering the fairgrounds in period clothing. One of these is a man who disappears, indicating this isn't someone in a costume. There's also been a little boy running around with a nickel trying to buy things, and of course in our time there's nothing for a nickel. The creepiest report is of a floating apparition near the crash site that has no arms, legs, or head. So basically, a floating torso. Wow. Wouldn't want to see that. No. There was another tragic train wreck that occurred three years later. The Hagenbeck-Wallace Circus was a circus that traveled across America in the early part of the 20th century. Although it was not as famous as the Ringling Brothers Circus, it was the second largest circus in America when tragedy would hit twice. It was based out of Indiana and started as the Carl Hagenbeck Circus. Hagenbeck had been an animal trainer, and it is thanks to him that circus animals were trained with rewards rather than fear. The Wallace Circus was just getting underway at the same time under James Anderson and Benjamin Wallace, and officially became the B.E. Wallace Circus under just Wallace in 1890. As happened with so many circuses at the time, Wallace grew his circus by buying the Carl Hagenbeck Circus, and the two merged into the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus. The first tragedy occurred during the Great Flood of 1913. The circus lost much of its menagerie. Eight elephants, eight horses, 21 lions, and tigers were killed. After that, Wallace sold his interest in the circus to Ed Ballard. On June 22, 1918, the Hagenbeck Wallace Circus was on their train traveling to a performance near Hammond, Indiana. Another train, an empty troop train, was heading towards them, and the engineer had fallen asleep. At 4 a.m., the two trains collided and the kerosene lamps on the circus train started a fire. The railroad cars were made of wood and the fire quickly spread. When the fire was over, 127 people had been injured and 86 had been killed. No animals were injured or died because they had been on a different train that arrived safely at its destination. The clown Big Joe Coyle lost his wife and children in the inferno. He would be sad the rest of his life, but he went on and created a vaudeville show called George White Scandals, which would launch the Three Stooges. Oh, wow. Nyah, nyah. <laughs> oh, wise guy. <laughs> there were many performers whose names were not known. They were just known by their nicknames, so that is what was put on their headstones. These were names like Smiley, Baldy, and Four Horse Driver. Fifty-three of the bodies were never identified and buried in a mass grave, with five bodies officially identified and given a proper burial. These graves are at the Chicago Woodlawn Cemetery in an area called Showman's Rest. Other circus performers have been buried here as well, and there are over 750 plots, and I think they now call it like the Clown Cemetery because most of them are clowns. Oh, There are reports that the Showman's Rest is haunted. An interesting report is the disembodied trumpeting of elephants. These sounds are mostly heard at night. There are no animals buried here, and none died in the wreck, so this is really bizarre. An Oak Park police officer even reported that he had once felt as though the ground were shaking beneath him, as though there were a heavy animal running past him, something the size of an elephant. 
There is laughter and circus music heard at odd times. Paranormal teams have investigated the cemetery and have experienced drained batteries and EMF activity in a cemetery with no electricity around. And then Debbie shared an interesting experience she had with her dog that seems to have a paranormal connection. Living in Virginia, I got into a lot of Civil War history. And I used to do a lot of house sitting, pet sitting, and so I stayed in some houses that... (laughs) One of the most convincing... I was staying in a house that was the second oldest house in Loudoun County, which made it very old. It had gone through it. It it had been on the, um, it was a big house up on a hill. I mean, it gave you that whole impression. And it um, was part of the Underground Railroad at one time. It was a, it was a a speakeasy during the Prohibition. It had a lot of history to it. And there's two stories, two things that happened while I was there. But I'll tell you the one that was actually most convincing. I was sleeping in the guest room. It was morning, it was light out, and I always had my dog with me, I had Springer Spaniels. And Cooper, who's lying beside me, all of a sudden, he just picks up his head, looks this way, and just watches somebody walk around the whole bedroom and out the door. Wow. I'm going, what in the... What are you looking at? (laughs) What was he watching? What was he looking at? (laughs) So yeah, I don't know. What did her dog see, Kelly? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they can definitely sense things and see things that we can't. Very true. And she had another really cool story that she wanted to say for the Halloween episode. Right. We won't we won't blow that. No. And share it now. (laughs) The performers are the circus. They've brought us such joy. Some have suffered some great tragedy. Have some of these tragedies left behind hauntings? That is for for you to decide. decide. Well, had another great time doing that one on our next episode. We're going to be talking about the Ringlings and their history and then heading up to Wisconsin. So the Ringlings in Wisconsin. And you're going to hear more from Carmen in that episode and her husband, Joe, and one of their little ones who happens to have the name Jojo. I love that. I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be great. People are going to love it. Plus, we also got to talk to the other owner of the Al Ringley Mansion. So we've got lots of people talking to and boy, does he have a heck of a ghost story. Yes. We want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Deirdre and Jordan. Thanks for joining us, guys. And please check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or on any of our social media. We will be sure to see it. Brianna had said on the website, Hi, just wanted to say that your podcast is one of my favorites. I look forward to it every time it updates. I appreciate the blend of spooky with historic facts, and I really enjoy the hosts and their banter. You keep me company during long work nights. Thanks for all you do. Keep on being spooktacular, ladies. Very sweet. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And we want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
as we pointed out in the first episode, the menagerie. <laughs> having a problem. Menagerie. The menageries. <laughs> there are multiple riders, and they ride around, and they they ride around. I need that wabbit again. <laughs> And then in 1923, he brought weird. That's an R W. It's so hard. He brought Weary Willie to life as a clown act. He joined Ringling Brothers in 1942 and stayed with them until the light, light until the late 1950s. What? Maybe there are some 1950s that were light. I don't know. <laughs> Jacobs had many gags, including not only his two foot by three foot small claw, his clar, clar, his clar. He had a small clar. Start that engine. Ring, ring. Acrobats were some of the first circus reporters. Reporters. What the hell Reporter. am I saying? <laughs> Acrobats were some of the first circus performers. The person I remember most from my young visits to the circus, mm. circles, circus, circus, 